When I became a Christian, uh, I was fortunate to learn right away that the church is not a building. The church is this small, peculiar group of people who met in a home in East Van. There was Leighton, who I haven't seen in 12 years, and he's actually here today. Uh, There's Anna and Mike and Derek and Cato and Kyle and others. They were the church. The church isn't a place, it's a people. That's why we say, thank you for bringing the church into this place. The place is not the church, it's where the church gathers. And as we gather in this place as the church, we need to ask ourselves, who is the church for? Now, it's easy to settle for a small answer. The church is for me. The church is for uh, my comfort. It's my place. It's where I go to be nourished. It's my little club. And sometimes we accidentally reduce the church down to a spa. It's where I go to be pampered and cared for and built up. And some of these things are good, but it's a small answer to the question. The big answer is that the church is for God and for the praise of his glorious Grace, those are the words of the Apostle Paul, that God saved and redeemed us to lavish us with his love so that we might delight in him and share in his joy as he delights over us now and forever. What's the church for? It's for God to lavish us with his love. But there's more to the answer still. The Apostle Paul wrote, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The church is for anyone. Religious or irreligious, working class or elite, underprivileged or privileged, the down and out and the put together. It's for the insiders and the outsiders, the young, the old, and everywhere in between. The church is for any and all who come to Jesus as Savior, Christ, and Lord. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, once said, the church is the only organization that does not exist for itself, but for those who live outside of it. The church exists for the sake of others, but how? How does the church exist for the sake of others? That's what I want to get at in this new series. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to look at place, posture, power, and presence. This is the first time I've ever used alliteration at St. Peter's Fireside. So here we go. Place, posture, power, and presence. We cultivate places for people to explore faith. We take a posture of invitation and storytelling. We depend on the power of the Holy Spirit and we become a presence throughout our city as we show mercy, seek justice, and live differently. That's how we become a church for the sake of others. And so today we begin with place. We cultivate places for people to explore faith. And at St. Pete's, we do this in a few ways. We run Alpha every year, which is a way people can bring their questions about God uh, to a, a, a neutral environment and have good dialogue. We run community groups that remain open to any and all. And you might think, oh, I'd never bring someone who doesn't believe in Jesus to an inward rhythm where we share about our hearts. I've done it, and it, it works. People 
are refreshed by that. You know, we run events like Trivia and Curry where we don't do anything overtly spiritual. We just welcome people. And anything we do, Alpha, community groups, Curry and Trivia, other things, it's always open. There is never a closed event at St. Peter's. There is always more room at the table. But this morning, I want to talk about this place, the place we gather to worship. You know, throughout history, the church has always gathered in a place to worship. The church has met in homes and in buildings. It's met underground in catacombs and outdoors, in amphitheaters. It's met in coffee shops and movie theaters and two stories underground in lecture halls. And typically, the church has met on Sundays. That's been the norm. But whatever day and wherever the church may meet, the place we gather to worship is not just for our sake but also for the sake of others. So if you're new here and you're just exploring faith, I hope that this series and this sermon will give you a sense of what we're all about here, why we do the things we do in this service, and what we hope they'll achieve. But if you call St. Pete's home or if you follow Jesus for a while, I still hope to remind you of why we do what we do and what you can expect Sunday after Sunday. Now, our reading was from... 1 Corinthians chapter 14, a lighthearted reading to kick off the new year. Uh, and so if you have a Bible, flip it open to Corinthians. If you don't own a Bible, take one of our gray Bibles home with you. It's a gift. Uh, we would love for you to have it. Um, everything will be on the screen behind me as well. Uh, we're just going to zoom in on verses 23 through 26. Here's what the Apostle Paul has to say. If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues... And inquirers or unbelievers come in. Will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. When I became a Christian, I didn't know anything about the church. And eventually I discovered there were more options than Anglican or Catholic. And so I visited a few churches throughout Vancouver with my only Christian friend at the time. And, and one time we visited, visited a Pentecostal church. I had no idea what that was, no idea what to expect. And I remember feeling really nervous because as the pastor preached, he walked throughout the congregation. And I couldn't always keep him in my line of sight. And I was terrified it was going to turn into this game of duck, duck, goose, <laughs> that somehow he was going to end up behind me and I was going to be put on the spot. And I thought, if the pastor would just stay on the stage, Preston, everyone would be a lot more comfortable right now. <laughs> so I was praying, don't stop at me, don't stop at me, don't stop at me. And so I got through the sermon unscathed. And after the sermon, a man came up and prayed. And I thought, well, that's interesting because it sounded like he was praying in Russian. And I don't know Russian. I just assumed that's what Russian sounds like. And then after he prayed, he prayed in English. And I thought, oh, that's cool. This must be like a multicultural church with like a Russian population or something in Vancouver. I don't know. And I looked over at my friend and she was white in the face. And after the service, 
She said to me, we can never go back there. They spoke in tongues. <gasps> now, I didn't know better at the time, so I never went back. But now I do. And I look back on that event, and I find it quite interesting. Because the brand new Christian wasn't offended at all by what had happened. I didn't know what was happening. It was actually the seasoned Christian who got really nervous. Tongues didn't freak me out so much. A roaming pastor really did. <laughs> you know, when we gather in places where Christians worship, it's not always comfortable. You know, church can feel like this upside-down world, and sometimes we fail to make what we're doing accessible to people. And we do this in part because we forget that our gatherings aren't just for us, but also for the sake of others. The Apostle Paul knows this. Since our passage touches on speaking in tongues, I'm going to talk about it briefly so you can stop thinking about it and we can move on toward what Paul is actually saying here. Now, from day one, the day of Pentecost, the church has been speaking in ecstatic tongues. And in many instances, this meant that someone who did not know a language suddenly knew a literal language and could speak in that language so that someone else who spoke in that language could hear the glories of God proclaimed to them. So often speaking in tongues is literally speaking in another language that you did not previously know. In other instances in scripture, speaking in tongues is described as a heavenly language. It's a prayer language that you pray to you and God for the building up of your life with God. These are the two kinds of ways tongues shows up in the scriptures. And a decent amount of Corinthians addresses this gift and its misuse. So to the church in Corinth, tongues became a mark of who was spiritual and who wasn't. And Paul says to them, you've missed the mark. Speaking in tongues, it's a good gift, but it's not a status symbol. It's not a sign of someone who's closer to God or not. It's just one of many different gifts. So you should know the gift hasn't gone away. Some people still receive it today. Many people in this congregation speak in tongues. And if you want to talk more about that, I'm happy to have that conversation with you after the service. But what Paul has to say in our passage isn't really about speaking in tongues. He makes three points, and they'll be the three points we follow this morning. The whole church comes together to be built up. Inquirers and unbelievers are present when they do. And when we gather together, we expect to encounter God. Those are the three points Paul makes. So point one, the whole church comes together in a place to be built up. And that's why we come together in this place, so we can be built up as we worship God. And there's different things that God invites us to do when we come together, Paul lists a few in this passage, like singing songs, teaching, using our spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Elsewhere, when we see the church gathering, we see they got together to break bread or to participate in communion for the public reading of scripture, for the confession of their shared faith. In Revelation, we see the church singing together in unison and also speaking together in unison. Better get used to liturgy. It's going to be in heaven. How the church has done these things together has always varied throughout the ages. There's never been one norm, and it still varies 
around the world today and around our city, and that's okay. The church doesn't need to be one in the same every way. There's lots of different ways to worship God, but whatever we do and however we might do it, it's all tied together in one pursuit. Paul writes in verse 26, everything must be done so that the church is built up. And that's why we strive to make sure every part of our service highlights the gospel. The gospel is good news of great joy about what Jesus has done for us to reconcile us to God. And the gospel then is proclaimed through song and liturgy, through sermon and sacrament. You know, we sing about what Jesus has done. We're assured through the confession of sin that our sins are forgiven through his cross. We open his word to learn more about who he is and what he's done for us. And every time we draw near to this table, Paul says, you proclaim his death until he comes. Every part of the service can preach the gospel and on our best weeks, Every part of the service does. But why do we need to be so gospel-centric? Why does it all need to tie back to that fundamental good news? Tim Keller put it like this. When the gospel is preached, nominal church members are converted. Sleepy Christians who've stagnated in their faith wake up. And non-Christians are attracted to faith. You see, everyone, no matter where you are on your pilgrimage towards Christ, everyone can be built up when the gospel's proclaimed. It's not the ABCs of faith. It is the A through Z. You know, it's the, it encompasses everything. It's not the beginning. It's your whole life with God. Without the gospel, there is no relationship with God. Without continually coming back to the gospel, there's no growth in Christ-like. But whatever gifts then, whatever talents are put to use when we worship, no matter who's exercising them, the emphasis then cannot be on the individual, but on the building up of the community. Now, the problem in Corinth, in part, was that when they spoke in tongues, it was emphasizing the individual. Paul reminds them that, you know, this gift is good, and it, but it's only beneficial to someone else if it's interpreted or if it's translated. And so whatever we do together, whatever slant we may put on it, it's for the sake of others. It's for other people. The person who teaches, teaches for the benefit of others. The musicians who play, play for the benefit of others. The person on hospitality welcomes for the sake of others. The person who sets up this church every week, God bless them, does it for all of your sake. The person who tears down the church every week does it for the sake of others. The people instructing in the children's room right now are doing it for the sake of others. Whatever gift or talent you put to use so that we can worship together, it's for the sake of others and should not highlight any one individual over another. And as a result... Paul says the church is built up. The church is built up. Now the word built up refers to the construction of a house. So we can imagine our worship constructing and furnishing a house where God comes to dwell richly. We're making space and room to be with him. And as we're with him, we become more and more like him. We become a reflection 
of Jesus and his presence starts to shine through us. As God fills this house, light flows out of the windows for all to see and it draws other people near. So together, we're being built into this house where God is pleased to dwell and we're meant to shine as lights throughout the darkness of this world. So when we speak of being built up, it means we have to avoid at all costs thinking that we're built up based off of our preferences. Church and what we do here together is not about what you like. It's not about how you prefer things to be done. It doesn't mean you'll always leave this service feeling good because the church isn't for you. It's for us. And it's not for us. It's for God. We gather to worship God and we're built up as we stop focusing on ourselves and turn our collective attention toward him. I once met this uh, cantankerous pastor and he was telling me about this stock response he had to people in his congregation. And if someone would come up to him and say, I didn't really get much out of the sermon today, or if they said, worship didn't really do much for me, he would respond, well, it's a good thing the service wasn't for you. Now, I'm not going to start saying that to you. <laughs> but he has a point. He has a point. So often we can go into a service and leave thinking about what we did or didn't get out of it. Rather than leave asking, did it honor God? Was God lifted up? Did we do everything we can to move our attention toward him? Did we use our gifts and our talents and the different structure of the service to point everybody to his presence and his power and his purposes for us in the world? And so the question for our gatherings in this place isn't, what do I like? But what honors God? What does he ask us to do when we meet together? And what follows is, how do we invite people into that? So the first point Paul makes is that the church gathers together to be built up. And the second point is that inquirers and unbelievers are present when they do. Paul describes the gatherings of the ancient church as open to non-believers and people who are curious. He assumes their presence would be normal in their gatherings. You know, people who are yet to follow Jesus are always welcome when the church gathers. And so if you're here and you're exploring faith, if you're asking questions about whether Jesus is who he claimed to be, I want to invite you to take as much time as you need to find the answer for that question. We have loads of resources that we'd love to share with you. We can introduce you to people who would be happy to journey alongside you patiently. Take as much time as you need, but don't take any more time than necessary. Because this is a question of internal importance. And Paul says to the church that everything we do together in worship must be mindful of you, must be mindful of the person who does not yet believe what we believe. And so when we gather together, it's not only a matter of what we do together, but how we do it. 
So once again, Paul uses spiritual gifts as an example. He argues that prophecy makes more sense in a large public gathering than speaking in tongues. And he reasons if an unbeliever or inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they're under, they are convicted of sin or brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Look, this doesn't mean that Paul thought that all Christian prophecy was some sort of fortune-telling trick where someone tells you about your future or your secrets. Yes, sometimes God will reveal knowledge to an individual about another individual that they could not have possibly known naturally. That happens. But from, according to Paul, prophecy is fundamentally unparalleled truth-telling. It is truth from God for the sake of others. Truth from God for the sake of others. And truth has a way of unveiling our hearts, of causing us to see ourselves in a new light. It has the power to cut through the clutter and get to the truth about us. And this can happen through any part of the service. As we sing songs, as we confess sins, as we're assured of forgiveness, as we read scripture and we confess creeds, as we preach sermon, as we participate in communion, as we pray, as we share prophetic words and images, whatever we do, the Spirit can take it and use it to communicate truth from God for us. And then we see ourselves in a new light as we see God for who he is. Whatever we do, how we do it matters. There is, a move, there is a movement that focuses on creating seeker-sensitive places of worship. Have you heard of this term, seeker-sensitive? Okay, some of you. Essentially, the goal is to remove anything that might be awkward or inaccessible so that someone exploring faith doesn't have any barriers. And I think the heart behind this is good, but sometimes a mistake is made. The concern for the comfort of an unbeliever takes greater precedent than the concern of what honors God in worship. And as a result, biblically commanded forms of worship get removed from the service in the name of accessibility. And so I much prefer the term seeker aware. Now, first and foremost, our worship needs to honor God. We need to ask, what does God ask us to do when we meet together? And we need to figure out how to do that. But whatever we do, we keep in mind that there are people here who won't understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, and so we need to guide them along the way. This is why the service sheet you're handed on the inside page explains every single component of the service. And this is why throughout the service, from the stage, we explain and highlight different moments in the service to help people understand. Now, for example, every Sunday before the offering, what do we say? Nobody asked you here for your money. We're really glad you're here. We'd like you to see this service as a gift to you. But if you call St. Pete's home or you're a follower of Jesus, you know why we give. And then we go on and explain. Or before the creed, we say, hey, if these aren't your words, you're under no obligation to say them. But if they are your words, we say them because they're our national anthem of sorts. So would you say them with some gusto? And I know, even looking at you right now, I know you get tired of hearing it again and again and again 
and again, but we don't say it for you. A few years ago, a member of our church had brought a friend to a service, and he had been praying for years, and he had invited his friend, and he was shocked when his friend said yes, and he brought his friend to the service, and then they left. And then the next week after the service, he beelined for me. And he said to me, I used to feel frustrated that you add all these explanations to the liturgy. Like part of me just wants you to get on with it. But when I brought my friend, it clicked. I understood why you do it. You made what was strange, understandable, and more accessible. And my friend said he never felt lost throughout the service, but continually felt invited in. And this was the perspective of someone who had never stepped foot inside a church, ever. See, no matter what we do on Sunday, it's always going to be a little odd. I hate to break it to you, singing to Jesus is really weird if you've never done it before. Listening to some Abercrombie and Fitch-wearing pastor, uh, that's what I wear apparently, uh, talk about Jesus for 30 minutes. Like, it's odd. And what's strange to me is that the seeker-sensitive movement removed everything except the two weirdest things we do. And they removed things like praying together and, and reading creeds and all these things that we need to do for our formation, and it's a loss. It's not wrong. There's permission, there's grace, there's no one right way, but we often remove these beautiful things rather than explain why we do them. How we do things needs to be mindful of people exploring in our midst. But what I love is that Paul assumes there will be unbelievers and inquirers in their midst. They will be present when you worship. They're present when we worship. The question is, how do they come? How do they find out about these gatherings? Most people usually come on the elbow of someone else. You know, yes, sometimes someone will just walk in here off the street. They see some signs. Or they were Googling for a church and they come here. Or someone referred them to this place and they come. But more often than not, someone comes because someone else invited them and met them here and sat with them through the service. And this place in part, exists so that you can bring people here to hear the gospel so they can encounter God over time and over time decide for themselves about the truth. So Paul's saying, the church has always come together to be built up through worship. And unbelievers are open, uh, are, it's open to unbelievers and they're welcome in that place so they can encounter God. But the third point is that we gather together and we expect to encounter God. Paul's expectation for unbelievers is that they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. And Paul expects this to happen because God really is among us. We can expect to experience God's presence in this place. It's part of God's promise because God's heart is to be among his people. You know, elsewhere, the church is called the temple of the spirit. 
We are the place God is pleased to dwell. And God dwells uniquely when the church gathers together in worship of him. Now, we can't control how we experience God's presence. It might be subtle. It might be overt. You know, you might have this profound encounter of God on a Sunday. That happens sometimes. Or you're just, you're floored and you're, the thin veil between the finite and the infinite is, is pulled away and you're just aware that you're standing before your maker and it, and it blows your mind. It, it might crush you and convict you of sin or it might cause you to weep. Like that happens in worship sometimes, but sometimes it's subtle. It might be a sense that God loves you. It might be receiving peace when you've been racked with anxiety. It might be a sense of joy. It might be comfort when you're in a season of loss and grief. God's presence is sometimes as simple as someone's hand on your shoulder praying for you. You might experience God as you sing or as you come forward for the bread and the wine. It might be as you express your spiritual gift or on the receiving end of someone expressing theirs. However we experience the presence of God in this space, we have to acknowledge it's outside of our control. We can't make God show up the way we want. But we can cultivate our expectation. And I know throughout this week, I've been convicted of that. I know it's easy to fall into a routine. I know that Sundays can just become another thing you do, another event in your week, another obligation. And we must fight against this temptation. We gather here because God has promised to be with us when the church comes together to worship. And so we can cultivate expectation that God will show up. And we do that through prayer. We need to pray for this gathering throughout the week that the Spirit would be poured out richly upon us. We need to prepare our hearts to come in ready to worship, to try to leave behind the distractions and fix our gaze on Jesus. We need people praying through the service for every part of the service, that the Spirit would move in our midst. We don't cease to pray to be present to the presence of Jesus and that others might come to see who he is. We can cultivate expectation that this is no ordinary gathering. This is a gathering in which God is pleased to dwell, in which he's pleased to move. He's pleased to work and we can expect him to do so. The church gathers to worship. There's lots of things we can do. There's different ways we can do it. Unbelievers are always welcome here, but as we become a church that exists for the sake of others, we also need to pay attention to how we welcome others. Paul writes in Romans 15, 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. If you've ever served on our hospitality team, you know on the other side of that badge, that's exactly what it says. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So how has Christ welcomed you? How has he welcomed you? Remember how he first loved you and pursued you before you ever gave him any real affection or attention. Remember who you are 
the first time you realize that the Lord of the universe is crazy about you. Remember what your interior life was like when you first realized that you are in fact broken, you are in fact a sinner, you are in fact ungodly, and yet none of those things can trump God's grace. That even at your worst, God loves you. Remember when you realized that with outstretched arms, Christ demonstrated his love for the world and for you specifically by being crucified and having his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Remember when you encountered and really understood for the first time that Jesus rose from the dead, that he really is alive, he really is in our midst. Remember that he did all of this to welcome you into his kingdom. Remember how patient he's been? That as you've stumbled toward grace and fallen short and failed to honor him with your whole life, that he's walked with you, he's dusted the dirt off your skin and knees, he's held you, he's comforted you, he's moved alongside you. Remember how Christ has welcomed you. Welcome one another. As Christ has welcomed you, welcome one another. Without bias or preference. Not just the people you find easy to love or like, but the whole church. And not just the whole church but the people in our midst who are asking for the first time, is Jesus really who you claim he is? And as Jesus has welcomed us, as he's loved us first, as he's pursued us, we need to welcome those who are yet to know him. In love, we need to pursue those that Christ wants to welcome as an expression that he's already pursuing them. He already loves them. He wants them to be welcomed. And so as you reflect upon how Jesus has welcomed you, I want you to ask, what's stopping you from inviting people to meet him in this place? What's stopping you from inviting people to meet Jesus in this place? Perhaps it's a series of what ifs. What if it doesn't go well? What if I strain the relationship? What if I don't know what to say? What if I drop the ball? What if they say no? What if I'm rejected? But what if we changed our expectations? What if it does go well? What if there is enough grace to stumble your way through an invitation? What if the Spirit will, in fact, help you find the words when you need them? What if they say yes? What if someone discovers the authentic community they've been longing for in a lonely and isolating city? What if they encounter God in the secrets of their hearts in needs and struggles you had no idea about? What if God uses your simple invitation to change the course of someone's life? The pressure's off. You don't have to ever invite someone to this place. Jesus can save people without you. But what if you have a part to play? And what if 
You get to experience the joy of heaven, the joy of Christ himself when the lost are found. I want to challenge you. You are never too old or inexperienced or too far gone to invite someone to encounter Jesus. God always works with the willing, not the perfect. So as we exist for the sake of others, we need this place so that others can hear the gospel. Now, place is just one part of it. We're going to look at posture, and we're going to look at power, and we're going to look at presence. But we need this place so others can discover or rediscover the goodness of God. And we gather here week after week with great expectation. God is really among us.